Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. That passage that Stephen just read is where we'll be. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I've titled this sermon, Forsaking the Family. Forsaking the Family. This is, just so we're not confused, this has nothing to do with anyone not currently here because they went to hear Vodi preach this morning <laughs> at Redeemer. Forsaking the family because this passage is about apostasy. And so let me read our text once more from the New American Standard Bible. 1 Timothy 4.1 reads, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience, conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This passage unfolds for us three details capturing the dreadful nature of apostasy. Three details that capture the dreadful nature of apostasy is what this passage is all about. And the first detail that we encounter in verse 1 is its certainty. Its certainty. Apostasy, this forsaking of the family of God, is certain. This is as much a part of body life as the one another practices that ought to be happening. But as one commentator says, this is the unhappy contrast to what is just preceded in this passage. You'll notice in verse 1 that it begins with a conjunction, but. That's indicating something different is happening. There's some sort of contrast following in verses 1 through 5 to what's just preceded. Look back at verse 14 of chapter 3. Paul says why he's been writing these things to Timothy. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you, Timothy, will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is why Paul is writing, because something urgent is on his heart. He has already left Ephesus for Macedonia, and he's writing back to Pastor Timothy, his son in the faith, because there are, is something that Timothy must know. This cannot wait, even if I have to wait to be with you. What cannot wait is that Timothy 
would know what everyone in the church ought to be doing, how they ought to be conducting themselves in the household of God. And so this becomes essentially the thesis verse of 1 Timothy. Between this verse and chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love. From a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, these become the really points, the, the thesis verses of 1 Timothy. Paul is writing his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, so that Timothy can confidently shepherd the entire church to practice piety-produced love. Piety-produced love, a love that comes from a pious or godly life. And Pastor Timothy gets this personal letter from Paul that would have been publicly read before the entire church so that everybody else in the congregation, men who are teaching error, elders in training, current elders, deacons, men, women, widows, and everybody in between needs to be well aware. Here's what Paul's saying to Timothy, because Timothy's supposed to be telling you guys, as the pastor, what you're supposed to be doing. So Paul is writing to Timothy so that Timothy can confidently shepherd this church in Ephesus to, to practice piety-produced love. And just notice what is riding on the conduct of the church in verse 15. Timothy and the other shepherds must know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. The house of God is not a reference to a building. The household of God is a reference to the family of God. A household is a family. And so this family of God, God's family, is called the church. She is the church of the living God. In contrast to all other religious institutions of the day, this body of people, this household, this family or church belongs to the one true living God. She is, according to verse 15, the pillar and support of the truth. God's reputation as the living God and God's truth are riding on the conduct, the proper working of the church body. So do you think of yourselves as that Southside Baptist Church? God's reputation in Abilene, Texas, not actually, not his intrinsic character, you understand. That doesn't change. That's been the same from eternity. But the perception of who God is in this city, in this state, in the world depends on the faithfulness of the church, and that is by God's design. You must work properly as a member of God's household so that God's reputation is adequately displayed in the world. And being the pillar and support of the truth, it does, we don't determine the truth, but we certainly hold it up. The exaltation the ability of the church to hold the truth up as it is true before a watching world within a wicked and perverse generation depends 
on the proper working of its members. So you, Christian, are crucial in the church. There is a common confession, something that unites every member in this family together, and verse 16 explains it. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. It is this, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. A succinct summary of Jesus' ministry here on earth. This is the church's common confession about the Christ. The incarnation, this proof or vindication in the spirit that he was who he claimed to be. Angels witnessed this. It was told to the nations. And he was believed on in the world and then ascended. This is the Christ we proclaim. What happens to some who are a part of God's household, who make this common confession, proclaim the gospel, enter into membership and covenant in the local church? Well, verse 1 of chapter 4. But there's another unfortunate reality that's a part of God's household, and it is this, that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Apostasy is certain. We see the certainty of this apostasy in several things. To begin with, the speaker of this very statement. Notice in verse 1, who says this? It is none other than the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of truth says that some will fall away from the faith. There's no indication as to when the Spirit said this, but certainly the Spirit did say it in the only way the Spirit ever says anything, and that is with words. Paul did not receive this by an impression. He was not moved by a feeling, something that could be confused with indigestion. (laughs) The Spirit spoke these words to Paul, and so the Spirit, since he only ever tells the truth, because he is the one who spoke these words, then we know that it is certain. Also notice the, not only the speaker, but the specificity. He explicitly says, explicitly he uttered these words. And it was this speaker who specifically said this statement. Some will fall away. Not might, not perhaps. There's not a possibility There's an actuality to this reality. Some will fall away from the faith. So when this happens, nothing strange is happening in the church when people leave this common confession and so distance themselves from the family of God that the profession's different and the placement is not close. That's what it means for some to fall away. And notice that it's from the faith, not from their faith. This isn't a statement about uh, the loss of salvation. This is the faith, that definitive, objective body of doctrine delivered to us by Christ 
through the apostles and the prophets, the body of teaching on which the church stands, the gospel, some are going to leave that confession. And it's not always because they stop claiming to be Christians. It's the, the, the leaving of the confession, the body of doctrine. They might still call themselves what the household calls themselves. They might call themselves a member of God's family, but the confession is just different. The doctrine is error, soul-damning error. And so this is what it means to fall away from the definite article of faith. One commentator says, an apostate is not one who gives up his profession of being a Christian, but one who forsakes the truth of the Christian faith. And so this is what Paul, the Spirit, by the Apostle Paul is saying will happen. Apostasy is certain. The speaker, the specificity, the statement, and the shift away from the faith all demonstrate the certainty of this reality. The second detail in this passage that captures the dreadful nature of apostasy is its stepping stones. Its certainty and its stepping stones. There is a path that leads to apostasy. And how kind of the Lord to not leave us in the dark, but he tells those who are members of God's household, here's the, the pathway to the door and beyond. He tells us the path to apostasy, and it is this. They will fall away from the faith specifically by paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So here there are really a few elements, a few stones to be stepped on, and they are these things. A willing attentiveness, deceitful spirits, and demonic doctrines. That's the pathway out of a sound confession of the faith and into soul-destroying apostasy. This is how you get there. And just notice the first stepping stone is just something as simple as paying attention. Paying attention. Christian, beware of your attentiveness. To what are you attentive? Do you give, do you lend your ear to error? Those fads, those uh, winds of doctrines that Blake talked about this morning in the young adult Sunday school class that don't seem so bad. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of error, but it's not heresy. Do you lend your ear to those teachers, to those teachings? Is just something not right about it? My pastors are warning me about that. Friends are concerned. But there's something about it enticing to my soul. I like it for some reason. This teacher is charismatic, has a way about him, funny, whatever. And there's just something about it that allures me. And so I lend that teacher, I lend that teaching my attention. Don't do it. This is the first step toward apostasy. 
Nobody wakes up one morning and say, you know, I think I'll be a, an apostate today. <laughs> There's a gradual falling away shift. Sometimes this happens over a period of months, some, oftentimes years. Beware of your attentiveness. And it's to specifically two things, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits and demonic doctrines. Again, Satan, just thinking about the garden, he didn't present himself as Satan manifest. And the first thing he says was, don't believe God, Eve. He's a liar. Right? No, it just started with a question. Did did God really say? An attack on the perspicuity or clarity of Scripture. Is that really what God is saying? Can I just get you to walk with me a little bit in questioning the clarity of, was he really that clear? Is that really what he said? What were his words again? Can you misquote him, right? That's a deceitful spirit. And behind that deceitful spirit was demonic doctrine. Just note, whenever there's a lack of clarity in teaching, there's a problem There's a problem. Whenever the teacher can't clearly communicate biblical truth, when you look at your Bible and say, you know, I just, I don't see that. I I hear what he's saying, but maybe I should just take his word for it. Nope. It's a problem. It needs to be clearly textual. You need to be able to see in the text what God is clearly communicating. So these stepping stones... Willing attentiveness, deceitful spirits, demonic doctrines are the path to apostasy. And because Satan doesn't just show up on the church's front door telling his willing listeners that he's bringing to them error that will destroy their souls in the end, because that's never how it happens, Paul, in the remainder of this passage, just lays out for us the means by which the deception and demonic doctrines come. Notice in verse 2, these come by the means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage, they advocate the abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. This is the third detail that captures the dreadful nature of apostasy, and it is the seedbed of apostasy. The seedbed of apostasy. This is the place from which apostasy sprouts. Apostasy cannot live just anywhere. Apostasy does not thrive where specifically the lives of the teachers of the church remain free from duplicity, remain free from impurity. If the lives of the teachers remain pure, that is a seedbed where apostasy cannot thrive. And that's Paul's point here. The seedbed is hypocrisy, deceit, a seared conscience, and satanic prohibitions. Let's take these one at a time. 
verse 2 says, this comes, these deceitful spirits, these demonic doctrines come by means of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Just not being above board, specifically as you see in the rest of the passage as it unfolds, in the teachers of the church. Flip back to chapter 1. I'll show you this in the This is the first problem that Paul tackles before he even gets to the real instruction. The men teaching error and the error that they're teaching have to be put down before the church can profit from anything else Paul has to say. That's why he begins in chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, why first of all? You've been talking for an entire chapter, Paul. Well, I can finally get to the first order of business. Now that I've told you what to do with the men teaching error in the church, because if there's error allowed in the church, then the rest of the good teaching will be undone by the error. And so what does he say first? Verse 3, after the greeting, as I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. The better translation is utter other doctrines. This is heterodoxy. Other stuff. Don't teach other stuff. Don't let them teach other stuff. Why? Don't also let them pay attention. Tell them not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. What is that administration of God, which is by faith? The thing that God has tasked his church to do by faith, well, it's this, verse 5. It's the goal of our instruction. Not speculation, but love. You see the difference between the clarity of the false teachers and, and Paul's clarity? They encourage speculation, right? Stay in the white spaces of your Bible. Ask the questions that God's not even addressing because the text is aiming at your conscience and aiming to purify your life. False teachers like to stay in the white spaces of your Bible because it doesn't indict them. And so don't be clear. Ask, just wade around in the theological waters of speculative doctrine because it doesn't actually instruct you to verse 5, to do what verse 5 is saying. Love. Love God. Love others, particularly in the church but not just love that comes from any kind of life. It's love that comes from a pious life. Notice verse 5. From these three departure points, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Faithful teachers of the Bible faithfully instruct the church to love from an upright life. And notice the heart, the conscience, and faith are all inner realities. They are things that cannot be seen until they manifest themselves on the outside. So biblical instruction aims at the inner life. This is not behavior modification. This is aiming at the inner life. Why was that not being taught in Ephesus? Well, it's the same reason why some were walking away from the faith because of 
Look at verse 6. Because some men had strayed from these things. What things? Well, a pure heart, a good conscience, and and a, a sincere faith. Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So the life of the teacher matters tremendously. You can look back in chapter 4, back in our passage. The seedbed where the apostasy of the teacher and or of the members of the church receiving the teaching comes. Hypocrisy. Also deceit. These men are liars. They are not telling the truth. But they might be attaching God's name to whatever lie that they're teaching. That fruitless discussion that they're promoting, the speculation. These men are not above board. What's wrong with them? Verse 2 says their consciences are seared as with a branding iron. This is not talking about the process of doing the searing where you get that metal white hot and then just let it sink into flesh. Right? This is not talking about that process. This is talking about the after effects. What has happened after that's been done and some time has elapsed and then the skin, the flesh is now in that area just rock hard, permanently marred. That is the way Paul is speaking about the consciences of these men. The aspect of the human constitution that God has imparted to all men as a warning system to tell them, this is wrong, don't go this way. These teachers of the church have been so marred in their conscience that it's, it's broken and unfeeling. Their conscience doesn't work as it ought to now. This is where apostasy thrives. How do, you, how do we know in the church when that's happened to a teacher at the conscience level? Well, verse 3 tells us they actually in the church prohibit things that God has created to be gratefully enjoyed. Notice things like marriage are forbidden, foods are off limits. They require abstinence from food as well as marriage. You know any religious institution that prohibits things so good and common in life as marriage and food? Sound like Catholicism? Priests cannot get married and they say this is a sign of godliness? to restrict an entire category of people in the church from marriage. This is why a part of the beauty of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, for centuries you had pastors, essentially men in the role of shepherd, that could not model godly marriages for their people. What a terrible season in the life of the church. The Protestant Reformation, by 
holding up scripture as the authority, Christ's voice as the Lord and the authority of the church, recovered marriage for the shepherds and even foods. Seasons like Lent. I'm from New Orleans. Just before Lent, you have Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras, and people just indulge the, that uh, the weeks leading up to Lent are some of the most immoral times in the city so that people can now abstain and gain favor with God on, on the basis of their own merit. That is a false gospel, clearly soul-damning error. And this is touted as somehow a form of godliness. These things, particularly the food and everything that God has created, he's created these things, verse 3 says, to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Why? For, verse 4 says, for everything, everything created by God is what? Good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Why? Verse 5 tells us, for it is sanctified, it is made holy by means of the word of God in prayer. What does that mean? This is not saying you need to say grace before you eat. The point here is, it is the, the good things that God created He created them so that his people would enjoy them. What does it mean to glorify God with the things that he has created? Well, it means you have a heart disposition and attitude of thanksgiving. So that when you eat, as we did yesterday, the the barbecue that God created, you worship him with each bite. And say, thank you, Lord, for barbecue. <laughs> the, the food sanctified by the believer's attitude to know the truth, to know the God who created the food and the end for which God created it, and to actually be intentionally mindful in the moment, God, this is good. You can apply that principle to anything that God has created for you to enjoy under heaven. Your marriage, intimacy in marriage, your work, your schooling, every homework assignment, you students, every song sung, every whatever, to receive those things from a good God as his gracious providential provision in your life. That activity becomes what, for the unbeliever, is just a selfish uh, idolatrous pursuit for the believer that becomes an opportunity to worship. And just think about how doing that, if you make that your goal in life, I'm going to thank God in the most mundane activities in whatever th- ways that I possibly can. Just think about the person who is intentionally going about their Christian life in that way what that does to guard them against apostasy. (laughs) 
the person who is constantly aware of the goodness, the generosity, and sovereignty of God in life in the small things would never dream of walking away from that same God when eternity's in view. And so this should be our aim. Let me just draw out one other implication from this text before I'm done. Just thinking about the certainty of apostasy. You should be eager knowing that this inevitably will happen, the Spirit says, to draw near to one another. To draw near to one another with the, eye, with the mindset, if this is going to happen, then it's not going to be due to my neglect of the other members of this church. How sad would it be that what the Spirit says is certain comes about because we were neglectful of one another. Don't let it happen on your watch. As far as it depends on you, step into each other's lives with not just common hobbies. We have things in common, but with the truth. Speak the truth to one another in love as we talked about in Ephesians 4 this morning. And if you know the stepping stones to apostasy, then help guard one another from those things. If you know that the purity of your teachers in this church, your pastors and elders, depends, your own soul depends on their purity of life, then you should pray for your pastor's purity like your soul depends on it, because it does. Pray for these men who lead the church. Plead with God that he would preserve them from error, that he would protect them from giving their attention to wrong doctrine. Because the souls of you, your family, and all the members of this church depends on it. Just note, just read 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul tells Timothy, you pay close attention to yourself, that is your own life, and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation. Literally in the Greek, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. This was, we spent two hours talking about this uh, one class period in seminary, just this principle. I had a, a, a crisis moment, went home and thought, do I really want that kind of responsibility? And God, are you sure that's a good idea to make the salvation of sheep dependent on the life of shepherds? That's what the text says. So pastors... Pursue holiness of life, not only for your own soul's sake, but for the sake of the people you love and shepherd. And obviously the, the seedbed component, guard yourself from apostasy by cultivating an attitude of constant thanksgiving toward the Lord and help each other in doing this. Let's pray.